0: And if you will, turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter, the book of Revelation, as we continue our study through the word. So you'll remember that the book of Revelation started with John, the apostle John, on the island of Patmos. And you'll remember that he was worshiping on the Lord's day and suddenly the resurrected, glorified Lord appeared behind him. And, and he wrote down the description of, uh, of the risen Lord. and. And then the Lord said that he was going to write seven letters. And so we saw the Apostle John record those seven letters that went out to the seven churches. And, and then last time in, in chapter four, we saw that there was this strong, powerful voice sounded like the blast of a trumpet that called John up into heaven. He was caught up in the spirit into the very throne room of God. You remember that we talked about that as a a picture of the rapture of the church. And we noted in particular the timing of it, that the rapture of the church happened before the judgments now uh, were poured out upon the earth. And, And so suddenly now we see that John is in the throne room of God. And the first thing that he notices is the throne itself. And you'll remember that the throne was occupied. It wasn't empty, but it was occupied. And God the Father is sitting upon the throne. And we remember that the Bible tells us that God is a light. And, and so John doesn't give us a description of what he looked like. He just talked about the the jasper stone and the sardis stone this clear white stone and this red stone and and so the light coming forth from that throne must have been some type of a mixture possibly of white light and red light but but the presence of god was there upon the throne he noticed as he pulled back, the next detail that his eyes went to was that there was this rainbow over the, the throne, but it was an emerald a hue in its nature and, and the glory of the Lord now shining there in the throne room. He, he noticed that, that the one main throne had 24 smaller thrones that were encircled around it and that there were elders on top of these thrones. And they had white robes and gold crowns that were upon them. And, and then he noticed that there were the seven lampstands, the seven torches, the Holy Spirit was present there in the, in the throne room itself. And, and he looked up and there were the cherubim that were flying about four of them and cherubs are six winged angelic beings of tremendous power and authority and and you'll remember that that they each were a little bit different it wasn't four of the same but that one of them had the face of a man and the other of a lion and the other of an ox and the other of a eagle and while they were slightly different in their appearance they were united in what they were declaring Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you'll remember that John saw that there was this sea of glass that, that now encompassed the, the very throne room itself. And, and as we continue now into this fifth chapter, we, we see that the stage is set, but the, the Lord isn't there. The Messiah isn't there. Jesus is not in the throne room yet. And we're going to see in this next chapter how Christ makes his entrance into the throne room and and what exactly it all means. So chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And so in the hand of the Father, here is this scroll. Now scrolls in those days, they were used to record important legal documents. So your marriage certificate was on a scroll and and it would be sealed. Leases and contracts, uh, they were on scrolls. Deeds and wills, they also were on scrolls. Now scrolls were these Long stretches of paper, papyrus was what was most common, and then vellum were also used, and they were written. And then when they were done being written on the inside, they were rolled up. And then on the outside of the roll, they would write what the roll was, much in the same way that our books have covers. And on the bindings, you see the name of the book and the author, Mm -hmm. so you know what is contained inside of the cover. So it was written within, and then it was written without, and then it was closed up with seven seals. Now, the more important a document was, the more seals that it would have on it. Now the number seven, anytime we see the number seven, typologically that is the number of completion. So it could be that there were actually seven seals that were on it in the literal sense, but also notice and recognize that seven is the number of completion. It means that this scroll was completely sealed and it was extremely important. The wills of the emperors, Augustus and Vespasian, their wills had seven seals that were on them as well. And so there is this seal. It's a document. It's an important document. It's got seven seals on it, and God is holding this document in his hand. And then I saw a strong angel, verse 2, proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose uh, its uh, seals? Suddenly, John now hears this uh, angel. He turns, and it's a strong angel. Strong angel. Got me thinking, are there weak angels? You know, oh, that's kind of a skinny angel. Oh, that's a strong uh, angel here. But it is this strong uh, angel that we have. Many scholars believe that it's Gabriel. And Gabriel, a tremendous archangel, powerful, and, but Gabriel, the name Gabriel means strength of God. And so because of the name strength of God, some have postulated that maybe it wasn't Gabriel. Who it was is less important than what it is that is being declared, and that is the question of who is worthy who is able to come and to open this document. And and notice here also that that this voice was a loud voice. It wasn't just the question of who is worthy, but it is a powerful angel whose loud voice seems to boom the question across uh, all of creation to ask, is there anyone worthy? to come and to open up this scroll. In verse 3, John says, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so the answer, no one. No one could be found in all creation. Not among mankind, not among the angels. Uh, uh, Nobody had the authority to remove the seals and, and to read the scroll, let alone to even look at it. Notice the term, in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth. And this is a common expression in the Bible that talks about the entire universe. All of God's creation was searched this voice went forth and there was no response. And we see that John's reaction now. And so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. The fact that this scroll is going to remain closed was so difficult devastating to the apostle john that he begins to weep but it wasn't just like a tear that comes down from his eye on his cheek the word that's used there in the original language is to sob convulsively he is sobbing and weeping over the fact that this scroll is not going to be opened and what that implicates To understand what he was responding to, we first have to know what is the scroll that that God is holding. The scroll that God is holding, I believe, is the title deed to the earth. And so here is the title deed to the earth. And the question is being asked, who is worthy to redeem the title deed back to God? You see, originally it was God's. created the heavens and the earth and the fullness thereof by the divine act of creation it was his but you'll remember that he then formed and fashioned uh, Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden and to Adam he told him I now give you dominion over the entire earth and so the the title deed of the earth now passed and to Adam and Adam was to care for the earth and to have dominion over it and and you remember that there in the garden, Satan comes and, and tempts Eve with the fruit and she eats thereof and then Adam eats thereof. And when Adam ate of the fruit, he broke fellowship with God and he stopped serving God and he started to now serve Satan. And whoever you obey, it is he who is your master. When a master has a slave, all of the possessions of the slave become the masters. And when Adam became the slave of Satan, the title deed, which was uh, Adam's, passed on to Satan. And Satan took possession of that title deed. The Bible tells us that he is the God of this world. You'll remember that Jesus, after he was baptized in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and, and he was taken away, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And you'll remember that afterwards, how and Satan came to him and tempted him those three times. The first temptation was to take bread, and to take a stone and turn it into a a loaf of bread. The second temptation, up onto the top of the temple. Cast yourself down, for the Bible says that you have angels that will care for you. You should not even dash your toe upon a stone. But the third temptation is when he brings them up onto the height of the mountains. You remember, and he shows them all the glories of all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all of this I will give to you. What was he talking about giving? The title deed to to the earth. What you came down for, what is so precious to you, I will give it to you. You don't need to go to the cross. You can hit the easy button right now and I'll hand you the scroll and and we can be done. (laughs) All you have to do is just bow down and worship me. And I'll give you the scroll. The title deed to the earth. And Jesus Christ came down from heaven to retrieve and to redeem the title deed to the earth that was in Satan's possession. In Leviticus, it talks about when you have a title deed to property and you lose that title deed, how there is a set amount of time for you to be able to redeem the title deed. It's found in Leviticus chapter 25. It says, If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, Then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released uh, in the Jubilee. And so we see here that there was a period of time. If you lost your property and needed now to sell it, you could go get your deed to that property back within a year's time. But if you did not redeem it within that time period and that year expired, whoever held that deed, it was theirs permanently. Even the year of Jubilee would not undo that and turn that back over. Here is the scroll, the deed to heaven. Who can open it? Who can redeem it? For if it's not redeemed, then it will permanently end up in the hands of Satan. And when no one was able to come and to take the, the scroll, what Adam had lost, what sin had cost, uh, now John begins to weep. And that weeping turns into convulsive weeping now, is, is the thought of what that meant. And so here is John now weeping in the the throne room, and it says in verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep, do not weep, don't cry. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, here he tells him, "Don't, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah He is able to redeem it. And and so underneath Jewish law, once again, real estate that had been forfeited, if you had lost the deed, you could redeem it back. Uh, Or somebody who was a near kinsman to you could also redeem it back. And so in order for someone to come and to redeem this scroll, Adam wasn't able to redeem it. He lost it. But now a kinsman to Adam, the last to Adam, would be able to redeem it. And so no angel could redeem it because angels are not kinsmen now to the human race. Fully God, but fully man. And as fully man, as a kinsman to Adam, he would qualify to be able to redeem the scroll and to be able to take back what had been forfeited. He tells him, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That is who is going to redeem that scroll and take it out of the hand of God. The lion of the tribe of Judah. We know that that's a messianic title, but... How is that a messianic title? Where does that actually come from? It comes from the book of Genesis. And you'll remember how Jacob had his 12 sons and Jacob's name gets turned to Israel. Israel has is the 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob. And you remember that before he dies, that he lays his hand on each of his sons and he he prophesies over them. Judah is the name of one of his 12 sons. And so one of the 12 tribes. And when Jacob puts his hand onto Judah and he prophesies over him, he describes Judah as a young lion. And he goes on to say that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations uh, will obey. And so, all nations obeying this scepter and this everlasting reign, this now describes the Messiah. You'll remember that there was the description that was given the promise of the Messiah that was going to come when Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden. You'll remember that God tells them that there is going to come a Redeemer. What you have lost is recoverable and it is going to be redeemed. And and the Redeemer is going to be born of the seed of a woman. And he said that he will crush Satan's head, but that Satan will bruise his heel. And therein, the promise of redemption. We see that he would crush Satan's head means that he will ultimately destroy Satan, but that Satan will bruise his heel and that refers to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ there upon the cross. And so Adam and Eve were cast out with just the promise that a redeemer was going to come. It was now through Abraham's sons and Jacob now and the 12 tribes that the next prophecy comes in a little bit clearer that it is going to come from the 12 tribes of Jacob, but it is going to come from the lion. It is going to come from Judah. And so the Messiah will come out of one of these 12 tribes. He says that the root of David, The root of David narrows it down even further into the identification of the Messiah's lineage. You remember that David had become king and he had built this glorious palace. He had cedars sent from Lebanon and and the incredible work of his palace. and, And there is David enjoying his palace. Uh, You remember how he had been persecuted by Saul and chased and all. Now he's finally in his palace. And as he's enjoying his palace, he looks out and, and from his window, he can see the tabernacle of God, the tent of God. This is the tent now that had been constructed and was taken down and put up and taken down and put up. And the Holy of Holies was now contained inside of this tabernacle. He's living in a palace and he looks and he sees God's living in a tent. (laughs) He says, I got to do something about this. I'm going to build a palace. I'm going to build a temple. For God, where it can be, his permanent residing place. He calls Nathan the prophet in. He's all excited. Nathan, guess what I have on my heart? I want to build this glorious temple that will give honor to God and to be a permanent resting place to the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And Nathan says, man, that is awesome. All this within your heart, go ahead and do it. And Nathan leaves the king's presence, and God says to him, Nathan, come here. (laughs) (laughs) What did you just say to David? Oh, God, David wants to build this great temple. He says, did you check with me? (laughs) God, it seemed like such a good idea, a temple for you. And David is going to build it. He says, David can't build that. He's a man of war. He has blood on his hands you have to go back in and tell David he can't build the temple. It's like, but I already told him he could. <laughs> it's not easy to tell the king he's not allowed to do something. <laughs> and God says to him, okay, here's what I'll have you do. Go in and tell him that he can't build the temple. He says, but tell him that instead of him building me a temple, I'm going to build him a house. And from the house of David, the Messiah is going to come. That it is going to come from his offspring. And you go and tell him that. And so Nathan goes back in and and tells him that he can't build it, but that David, out of the tribe of Judah, the house, your house, your lineage is where the Messiah is going to come through. And so you'll remember that David spends the rest of his life taking and acquiring the gold and the silver and the timbers and everything for the temple so that Solomon, once he ascends to the throne, can take all the provision and build the temple. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, just as was prophesied, the root of David, just as was prophesied, he is the one that has prevailed. He came down and he prevailed uh, over Satan, He won in a way that no one expected. He won when He died on the cross. And Jesus is the only one that is worthy to open the scroll. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over Satan. He was victorious over the grave, over death itself. And He alone lived upon this earth free from sin. He is worthy And it says in verse six, and I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so there was a a lamb. He says, it was a, a, a lamb. And I, and I beheld. The word beheld means to marvel in astonishment. He, he was told the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that is who is going to redeem the scroll. And he had seen the resurrected Lord there on the island of Patmos in his glory. And the flames fire for eyes and the two-edged sword in his tongue, powerful in authority glory and so he expects now the lion of the tribe of Judah and it's a lamb that term for lamb means a little lamb it means a delicate lamb you will remember that once a year at the Passover the Jews every family household was required to take a lamb and to take and offer it to God the Passover lamb Four days before the Passover was the day of selection for the lamb, you would take a one year older, younger lamb, and you would bring it now to the priests, and they would expect inspect it. It was to be without spot or blemish. A spot means that it was had a was born deformed. And so it couldn't be a deformed lamb. And it couldn't be scarred or mangled or mutilated, something that had happened to it after it had been born. It couldn't be with spot or blemish. You would bring it now to a priest, and and they would confirm that this is an acceptable lamb for you to sacrifice. And then you would take it back home with you, and you would bring it into your house. And for four days, this lamb now became a pet in the house. Oftentimes they gave it a name and they had this pet for four days and then they offered it as a sacrifice to God. And so this lamb that has relationship but is innocent, this is the lamb now that John sees. And he says that within this lamb now, it it had the the physical representation of having been slain. The scars were in it. It was alive. But yet the scars are still there. What does that mean? In the book of Prophet Zechariah, it talks about the fact that that when the nation sees Jesus. It says that they are going to ask, what are the meaning of those wounds in your hands? And he will answer, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. And so we see this Lamb of God, innocent, yet carrying the wounds. We see him identified now by his genealogy from tribe of Judah from the house of David. It is interesting that today in the nation of Israel, Jews, not just in Israel, but throughout the entire world are waiting for the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus uh, is the Messiah. And so they are waiting for their Messiah. It is interesting that the Messiah's credentials are that he has to come from the lineage uh, of the tribe of Judah and he has to come specifically out of the house uh, of David. We know that Jesus meets those qualifications. In fact, Matthew's Gospel begins with what? The genealogy of Jesus Christ. To what? Show that he meets the prophecies that are recorded in the Old Testament, that he comes from the tribe of Judah, and in particular, he comes through the house of David. Why is that relevant today? It's relevant today because of the fact that these scrolls that have genealogies on them that were so meticulously kept by the Jews were all stored in the temple. And in AD 70, when Titus came in and the temple burned down, all of the scrolls were burned and lost. We have the genealogy of Jesus Christ because the Gospels were written before the temple destroyed all of the genealogies and they were copied and copied and recopied and recopied and so we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Today, if someone was to show up and say that they are the Messiah, they would not be able to prove that they are from the tribe of Judah or that they are from the house of David. And so here we see that in the throne, the identification of uh, the Messiah, the Lamb that was slain, is, is that he was from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David, and he still bears the scars uh, of his sacrificial death there upon the cross. And it says in verse 7 And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who um, sat on the throne. We see that the Holy Spirit had descended upon Jesus in His earthly ministry. And here we see that Jesus is in the throne and we see the seven spirits uh, uh, of God that's representative of the Holy Spirit now mm, is upon the Lord. And and He comes and He takes the scroll. No created being was found worthy to take the scroll. But the Lamb, He can take it. And so mm, the appearance of the Lamb coming in and taking the scroll. This marks the beginning of the end of the present age with each of the breaking seals. His second coming is brought closer and closer. And when the Lamb takes the scroll from the Father's hand, all the weeping stops. And suddenly now there there is this eruption of praise that comes forth in in a new song. In verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so the 24 elders, they prostrate themselves uh, before the Lamb, and and they now are praising God. In verse 9, and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And so this is this new song of the redeemed. And it says here that he has made us kings and priests to our God. Three times in the book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that he makes us to be kings and priests. And so we are kings and priests. Now, we are kings. But the Bible says that he is the king of kings. And and it says that we are priests. But remember that even amongst the priests, there was always a high priest, one high priest above the priests. And we have one high priest, one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. And and so we are going to be kings and priests when he sets up his kingdom. We are going to be the government. You're going to have a government job. (laughs) gonna be a government employee (laughs) I hear the benefits are fantastic Uh, in verse 11 then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And, and, and so here we see that, that now the angels are there and, and there is the four cherubim that are there and, and the elders, remember the elders represent all the saints and so here we see that their number is given to us 10,000 times 10,000 plus thousands and thousands. Now, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Why doesn't it say that there are billions times billions and gazillions and jillions and, and all of it? Why is it 10,000 times 10,000? Well... This was written in the Greek language, and I want you to know that in the Greek language, the largest number that there is is (laughs) 10,000. And so he takes the largest number times the largest number. Then he adds some extra thousands in on top of it. And, uh, and so if we do the math and say, oh, I know how many there are in heaven now. Look at here's the number. No, this number is representative of an incalculable number. An incalculable number. And they are praising with a loud voice, Worthy, 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 worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the One. Worthy is Jesus Christ who disrobed Himself of His glory and, and took on the form of men and walked amongst us and never sinned on the face of the earth. He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, dominion and power and strength. And then verse 13, look it with me. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And so here it started with just the angels uh, and then the cherubim and and all the redeemed saints, but then it says that every single creature is going to join in and sing this song that is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and as are in the sea and all that are in them, every single one of his creation is now going to enter into this in praise. And so all of the animals, I feel like it's going to be a giant Disney movie. (laughs) We have Finding Nemo and all the fish can talk and in the Jungle Book, all the animals can talk and all of his creation are going to now sing together as a giant choir. Guinness Book of Records uh, has the largest choir, was in the Philippines in 2016. And it was over 20,000 people in one choir. <laughs> Small potatoes. <laughs> how about all the animals? How about all of the creation singing together of how worthy God is? You remember how Jesus, when he was making his triumphal entry and the crowds were singing the hosannas to the son of David and the religious leaders told Jesus to silence his followers and, and to not receive their praise. And, and you remember that Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, if I was to silence them, even the rocks, the stones would cry out. And I always thought, man, You got the big boulders on the base, you got the little pebbles uh, taking the highs, and you got this whole choir of rocks that are going to sing for them. I I wanted to hear that, but now all of creation singing together in a giant choir, that is going to be something. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And the elders prostrate themselves once again, and he is worshipped. He who lives. To God be the glory. God lives forever and ever. and He is worthy of our praise. As we close our study here, I wanted to draw attention for just a minute to verse 14 where where it talks about these 24 elders. They fall down and they worship Him. It talks about how they had harps and these golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And it got me to thinking about those two gifts that God gave us. The gift of prayer and the gift of praise. The gift of... Prayer, speaking to God, communicating with God. God's desire is for an intimate relationship and he wants conversation with you and he wants conversation with me. And he lets us know just how he feels about us talking to him. He says that that it is as sweet as incense to me that is offered up. Every single day in the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice at the temple, the priest would go into the altar of incense which sat right before the Holy of Holies and he would take a coal off of the the altar in the court of the priests and he would bring it in with this incense and there, congregation praying outside, he would set the coal and he would sprinkle the incense on and it would ignite and that incense would then make an aroma up unto God and it's pleasing unto God. God is pleasing. Pleased with us when we mm, talk to Him. And He has given us the privilege now, we have the access through Jesus Christ to mm, come and to mm, pray, to talk to God. God doesn't just want our talking to Him to be the 911 prayers. <laughs> oh God, I'm so in trouble. Please get me out of this one. Rescue me now. <laughs> He wants more than just that. He wants intimacy. He wants communication. Just talking to him. How are you doing? How is your day? What are the things that are on your heart? How is life going? And and I feel sometimes our prayers can fall into the category of the communication typical of a teenager. (laughs) Teenagers come home from school and you say, "Hey, how are you doing?" Oh, good. <laughs> what happened today? <laughs> Anything good happening "Is going, "Hey, why are you bugging me?" Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I love you. <laughs> and because I want to know how you're doing. How are you doing in there? How's life going? what pressures and problems and trials are you mm, struggling with what are the good things that are mm, going on with you i care for you i'm crazy about you you see that's the father's heart i'm crazy about you i love you what's happening in your life what are the good things what are the blessings that you've noticed in your life and what are you concerned with what are you weighed down with come talk to me come talk to me And God has given us the gift uh, of prayer, of our words. And he lets us know that your words are like incense that rise up to me. And that is his desire and the gift that he's given to us. He's given us also the gift of worship. The gift of worship. You see, worship changes us. Worship is a gift that changes us. You see, behavioral scientists tell us that whatever things we think about and whatever things we dwell on, our emotions are going to follow after our thought life. When you get up in the morning, sometimes we, we wake up and there sitting next to us is the bag of problems that was there when we went to bed the night before, just waiting for us. And sometimes before we even put our feet on the floor, we start going through that pile. The meetings that we've got. The boss wants to talk to us today. We're not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And, and we've got pressures and challenges and, and all of the different things. And, and our heart begins to be stirred by the things. Our emotion will follow your thought life. Your emotions will follow your thought life. And so what did God tell us to do? He told us to meditate on whatever things are true, lovely, noble, of good report. If there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. When you think about those things, your emotions immediately are buoyed by those good thoughts. Your emotions will follow your thought life. You can't control your emotions, but you can control your thought life. And so he gave us worship. What is worship? Worship is now thinking about the greatest thing that there is to even think about. And and if you don't know what the greatest thing that there is to think about, I'll give you a clue. God. God. What is worship? Worship is getting our eyes off of the bag of problems that we've got in our life. And it turns our face up to God. And God wanted us to have this picture of his actual throne room. Of him seated upon the throne. Majesty and power and glory. And the 24 thrones that are around him. And the angelic beings and the rainbow over the throne, the sea of glass that is before him to just stop and to just look up and to just worship God. And when we worship God, two things happen. Number one, our emotions trail up afterwards. And secondly, when we look back at that bag of problems, uh, it doesn't seem all that big anymore in comparison to the glory of the throne room of God. Worship and prayer. Two gifts that he's given to each and every one of us. And he says every single day, take those gifts out and, and play with them and exercise them like your precious toys when you were a child that you had that was your, your favorite cherished. He says, I've given you these two. And, and add the word of God to The Word of God will give sustenance to your soul. It will give you strength to live upon, to feed upon. And then talk to me. And then forget about your problems. Turn your eyes upward and worship me. Every single day, pray and worship and feed your soul on the bread, the bread of heaven the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gifts that You've given us. Thank You for prayer. Thank You for worship. Thank You for Your Word. And God, we ask that You would just continue to do that work in our hearts. That You would help us to walk by faith. We would keep our eyes tilted up. That we would keep communicating with You Lord, that you would sustain us by your word. Help us, God, to continue to keep you first, that there would be no rival in our hearts, no equal, that you would be firmly enthroned and worshipped. And Father, thank you for that privilege that changes us. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.